It came from out of nowhere. It was high August when the horse sprinted down Main Street and impaled itself on a fence post. The road was so brown with dirt and dust and laced with the white weeds of last month's grass clippings that it might as well have been unpaved. This would all change a few days later when the flood came and turned the dust and dirt into thick ridges of tar-like mud that zebraed the pavement from one end of the town to the other. But before the flood, before Mrs. Campbell was mauled, before Mr. Creek died when his house burned to the ground, A horse ran down the middle of Main Street, sending up dust, its hooves echoing brightly off the store windows. Shop owners performed double takes. Wide-eyed children pressed their faces up against glass panes. Daniel Howell, who owned the Chuggalug, the town's only bar, said he saw the whole thing. According to him, the horse, a chocolate-brown mare with a jet-black mane, spooked, trampled a Honda, and ran off. As he bustled around the bar, he heard a scream like he'd never heard before. Feral, primal, the excruciating wail of an animal in terrible pain. It seemed to last forever until a gun blasted it away, leaving only receding thunder in its absence and the ridiculous yowl of the car alarm. The gun belonged to one of the local farmers. He'd been in town to pick up extra posts for a fence he had to repair. The posts were ten feet tall. They were sticking out of the back of his truck like pikes. He'd gone back into the hardware store to pay for them when the horse made its final run. I heard the scream. The horse's scream, he told a police officer. I didn't know what it was at the time, and the clerk gave me a look like he'd seen a ghost. He could see out the window where I couldn't. Your truck is all he said. For a minute I thought maybe I'd hit something on the way over I didn't know about. So I run out the store, and when I got two steps onto the walk, what I saw stopped me dead in my tracks. Just like Gloria Campbell stopped in her tracks two weeks later at the sight of three red-eyed pit bulls standing next to her house deep growls rumbling in their broad, muscular chests. She lived in a converted VW bus on Patriot Lane, the mostly gravel road behind the Chuggalug where, as legend has it, her husband, the original owner of the now-halved and domesticated VW, parked 40 years earlier on his way through town, parked right behind the Chuggalug for a burger and a beer, parked and never left. It's hard to say what Gloria was thinking when she first saw the pit bulls. Could she make it back to her front door before they... Could she pick up her dog before they? In the end, it didn't matter what she was thinking because her dog, a little bug-eyed, pink-skinned Pomeranian, decided that he wasn't so bug-eyed and pink-skinned after all and let out what must have seemed to him to be a full, throaty, intimidating bark. And that's when the three pit bulls broke for them. In a situation like this, a logical mind asks, why? And when the answer doesn't satisfy, the logical mind demands proof. It might ask this or demand that, but when faced with something so horrific, so utterly and incomprehensibly foul, its tendency is to cry fate and leave it at that. More reasonable than reason, more sensible than sense, and it makes for a better story. That's not fate, a neighbor said, trying not to look what was left of poor Mrs. Campbell and the Pomeranian and the three pit bulls. That's just bad luck. That's not bad luck, the officer replied, holstering his sidearm. That's just what happens. 
like what happened to that horse. The farmer had seen some disgusting things in his life. A bull's horn shot up through an arrogant ranch hand's shin. A mangled hand caught in a thresher. A drowned cow bloating in the sun on the bank of the river. But he'd never seen anything like a horse impaled on a fence post. I knew what to do right off, he told the reporter. His hunting rifle was hanging securely on a rack in the pickup's rear window. That's the gun Daniel heard thunder in the late afternoon air. The street was littered with glass and blood. The Honda's alarm cycled and howled, cycled and howled. Daniel reached into his pocket, pulled out his keyless entry fob, and pointed it at his ruined car. The alarm shut off with a chirp. The officer followed the horse's tracks out of town. They ended, or rather began, three miles up the road, next to a copse of trees at the base of Gunderson Hill. He poked around at the pebbles and the rocks in the road, poked around in the stiff yellow grass that crackled under his feet, but he couldn't find any more. Just started, he told everyone, like out of thin air. And so it all led back to Old Opie, the people said. Old Opie and his 12-pound Civil War cannon. Old Opie, Vietnam War vet and living reminder of the nation's colonial past, the last Powhatan still living in the area, his family having stayed when so many others left, or were forced off their land, or were killed. Every last citizen knew he was crazy, camping out in the woods in Killian's Heights like he did. But did he know? Standing in the shade of Gunderson Hill, gray hair sticking up and out and all over his head like a hoary halo, beard waggling as he jumped up and down behind the cannon, shirtless, shoeless, wearing only an old pair of cut-off jeans so ancient that they'd run as white as thin as paper? Did he know, as he scraped the long match against the rough surface of his cheek, as the flames sputtered and flared to life? Did he know, as he touched fire to fuse, eyes crossed, mouth stretched wide with glee? The White House on Killian's Heights once belonged to a sea captain's wife. It featured a widow's walk jutting off a pentagon-shaped room walled in by windows and one door. The walk ended in a black lacquered fence where the sea captain's wife used to stand and think about her husband on the ocean, hundreds of miles away. Being so high up provided her a clear view of the water to the east, as well as Gunderson Hill, which peaked to the north. Behind her sat a forest, dense and thick and silent. When she grew older, and the sea captain was long gone, the widow liked to climb up to the walk at night, holding a flickering candle to light the way, a beacon to the dead. After she passed, children spread the rumor that her light could still be seen on nights when the clouds were black and blocked out the moon, and that if you looked directly into the light, the widow would come to your room and suck the life from your lungs. Nobody was there when she hanged herself from the walk. Nobody knew until the early morning when the milkman, standing in the middle of Main Street, happened to stop in his labor to wipe the sweat off his brow. It was summer, and glanced uphill and saw a slash of black dangling against the whitewashed siding of her house. He frowned at first. The cold bottle of milk he was about to press against his forehead held loosely in his fingertips. Then his eyes widened when he realized what it was, and the bottle slipped out of his grasp and shattered on the ground. The legend endured. Joshua Creek, 
a mere lawyer, fallen from his ancestor's lofty position, knew about it when he bought the place. He often sat in the Pentagon-shaped glass room, especially in the spring when the windows amplified the heat of the sun. He sat and let the light warm his face and arms and body, sat and watched the street below, a watcher of the living. He knew the house was haunted, but not by the widow, and not by the sea captain, but by the sea captain's men, all of whom drowned alongside him when their boat was caught in high seas and went down, 44 souls lost, the bodies never recovered, trapped beneath the terrible weight of the ocean. Unlike the bodies of the Powhatan village just outside Joshua Creek's great-great-grandfather's plantation, on land that was first taken from the tribe by death, then later from the Creek family by the War of Northern Aggression. These bodies were found on the cold ground outside the wigwams and longhouses. Men mostly, a few boys, their skin blistered and rigid, raised hard pustules forming ranges from chin to ankle. The women and girls were still inside, all of them to the very last, wrapped in the blankets that had been brought to the country by the sea captain himself, blankets ordered by Joshua's great-great-grandfather and sent to the village as a gift. The village which, in a letter to Mayor Campbell, Creek stated would make a fair addition to the plantation, and as such, the town in general. I won't do it, snapped William Howell, the town mortician. Fog lurked at his feet, blanketed the village, wrapped it in a fell coffin. He struck the earth with his cane, sending white swirls around his ankles. Shadows of wigwams hovered all around him, and his eyes rested on the hulk that could only be the longhouse at the end of the village. Noise came from that direction, rhythmic thuds. He peered into the dank gray light. A horse broke the curtain not ten feet from him, frothing, eyes white and wide. It barreled forward and would have trampled him had Campbell not shoved him out of the way. He wouldn't do it, would not bury the dead, would not poke his head into the diseased hovels, excavate the bodies, separate belongings. He spat on the ground, ignoring the mayor's stare of disbelief. And Campbell himself? He could only watch as Howell walked away, finally calling after him, Then what do we do about this? Howell waved his cane in the direction of the plantation, Creek's kingdom. These troubles are his, he shot back and stalked away. Burn it all, Creek told Campbell. Campbell was again dumbstruck, holding a saucer in his left hand, the teacup in his right, the tea steaming in the air above his nose. He blinked, but he waited. He waited until August when the stench became too great, finally ordered the sheriff to gather up a gang of the town's roustabouts and arm them with torches. The thick black cloud hovered above the town for a week after, until the storm came an electric storm that rebounded off the parched ground and washed away the tribe's ashes and flooded Main Street. Still, for months after, the residents swore they could still smell it in the air, smoke and death. Over a century and a half later, Joshua Creek, too, suffered from the same olfactory curse. He swore he could smell something burning after old Opie fired the cannon shell at his house. It had blown a hole in the wall on the first floor and exited through a window on the other side. The sheriff never found it, though he searched the woods behind his house for over an hour. But the smell remained, and so Joshua Creek crept around his house that night with a flashlight, seeking out the source. He started in the basement with its seven-foot ceiling and dirt floor and acrid smell of mold, then creaked up the stairs and into the kitchen, around the first floor, up to the second floor, and into the attic, and out onto the widow's walk. And there he stood, even after the batteries and the flashlight went dead, staring at the town below, until finally he turned and descended into the attic and then to the second floor and into his bedroom, not knowing that in his walls the smoldering wires shorted out by the cannon shell were flickering with flame.
exactly one year before Old Opie fired his cannon at the dwelling place of his ancient enemy, before Gloria Campbell was mauled to death by a trio of dogs, little Lucy Graham visited the old Indian village with her parents. It was August. Main Street was lined with wooden stands selling crafts and flea market goods, hand-carved wooden dolls, sunglasses, bird feeders, garden flags, handmade jewelry, and the food. Pretzels, hot dogs, soda, cotton candy, fudge, beer, popcorn, hamburgers, barbecue. Lucy strolled the street with her parents. They bought her an oversized pair of yellow sunglasses and a vanilla ice cream cone and a bottle of water. They rode the free trolley out of town to the far corner of Creek Plantation, a mile away. The trolley swayed and lurched down Route 616, sending a few of the fat and poorly balanced into the aisles, giggling at first, then steadily muttering. Though the drive only took a few minutes, the man in the seat across from Lucy fell asleep, a newspaper on his lap. The tour began with the recent archaeological dig that started six months before, when a plantation visitor stumbled across a 250-year-old piece of pottery, and ended with the excavation of an entire Powhatan Indian village, or what remained of it after what the archaeologists referred to as a significant fire. They came across Old Opie. His transformation was a shock. Lucy had seen him around town before, a scrawny, anorexic old man wearing deerskins, his gray hair teased to great heights. She'd seen him as she gazed out the back window of her parents' car, stabbing the air and hollering. But today, he was wearing a full three-piece suit, gray, with a white shirt and black bow tie, a black top hat, and shiny black shoes. When he removed his hat, his hair was slicked back and wavy and perfectly parted down the middle. He wiped the sweat from his brow, placed the hat on a little wooden nightstand, and bowed slightly at whoever passed his display, an empty wigwam populated by a few dozen blankets. Next to the tent sat the cannon. Behold, he said, his eyes glittering as Lucy approached, the devil's instruments. He gestured broadly into the tent, and her eyes followed his hand, finally falling on the blankets. Then he pointed at the cannon. On one side, he'd etched a mare. On the other, a trio of red-eyed, menacing dogs. And Cerberus, he added, our revenge. Thanks again for tuning into the Mad Tales podcast. I hope you are enjoying all the new stories. If you are interested in buying the wounded, the sick, and the dead, it will be available in digital and paperback on Tuesday, August 27. If it's past that, if you're listening to this past that, it's already available. You can pre order it on my website, jamesnoll.net forward slash WSD. So that's J A M E S N O L L dot net forward slash WSD. If you pre-order it, or if you've missed the pre-order and you just want to order it afterwards, you get the digital copy, a signed paperback, mailed to you, and when the audiobook is complete, I will send you a digital copy of that as well. So, the Wounded, the Sick, and the Dead package is $9.99 right now for the pre-order, and the price will go up on the release day, which is Tuesday, August 27, 2019. You can check that out if you're interested in getting it at jamesknoll.net forward slash WSD once again. So thanks again. 
for listening. You guys are awesome. Please keep on sending me feedback. And hopefully you'll check out all the stuff at my website or support me on my uh, Mad Tales Patreon. And a bit about the Patreon. There are three different levels of support. You can give me a dollar a month for however long you want. And I will give you a thank you and a shout out on the podcast. Uh, You can give me $5 a month for however long you want. And not only do you get a thank you and a shout out, but I will also give you access for as long as you are supporting me uh, to all of my eBooks and all of the audio that includes the audiobooks and the music. And you can get that in the users area of the Mad Tales Patreon account or Patreon account or however you want to pronounce that. And then there is a $10 level. The $10 level gives you both the $1 level and the $5 level prizes. And you also get your own short story from my personalized, my customized short story service. If you are interested in any of that, you need to go to patreon.com forward slash Mad So thanks once again and tune in next week for a new short story.